This episode is brought to you by Stratosphere.io, the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. The service saves time, has a beautiful interface, and has the best data visualizations on the internet for equities. Now, our favorite features are the 10 years of data with data visualizations. This includes company-specific KPIs, charts for all the financial metrics you might be interested in, and stuff specifically for that company. So for example, if you're looking at a payments company, you might have take rates, you might have GMV. If you're looking at a marketplace, you'll have GMV as well. All that good stuff that can get you updated on your research process. If you want to get started today for free, go to stratosphere.io and start utilizing the powerful research terminal. Again, that is stratosphere.io. The link is in the show notes. We hope you'll join us on there today. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive interview where we have on a single analyst or expert and we discuss one stock. And today we're talking about ASML with Leandro. He has been on the show twice now. And just for some context, ASML is a semiconductor equipment provider uh, and the leader or a leader in advanced lithography machines. If you if that sounded like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, don't worry, Leandro gets into what that is, but he is the main contributor at Best Anchor Stocks, a Seeking Alpha service. I really do recommend checking that out. He does very thorough research, and I think you'll see that today. But before we get to the interview, Brett, what were some of your highlights? Uh, my highlights were talking about the the geopolitical relationships, talking about the competitive relationships. Is it someone able to copy what ASML does? And then their R&D relationship, uh, not just with their own company, but with their suppliers, kind of getting everyone moving in the right direction so they can get these new machines to market in 2025 and how they are the not the one company, but one of the company's leading companies like Apple, Samsung, Intel, NVIDIA to create the most advanced chips in the world. And I guess you could say they're one of the companies that's contributing you able to be streaming this podcast from your phone, uh, just given how they've been able to, you know, keep Moore's Law going, all that good stuff. So you can thank them for the podcast industry indirectly. Uh, but yeah, we go in through all the details, the cyclical parts of the semiconductor cycle, or excuse me, the cyclical threat that people are thinking about right now. I think anyone that's maybe knows ASM well, ASML well, will learn a lot from the show or maybe get some good thoughts going. And if you don't know them at all, it's also a good introduction. Yeah, I agree. And I, I was kind of a novice coming into this and Leandro paints a really good picture of how the business works and, and sort of its moat within the industry. But uh, we don't need to go any longer. Here's our interview with Leandro. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. Today, we're joined by Leandro. You may know him as Invest Quotes on Twitter. Uh, he has some uh, some really aesthetically pleasing uh, 
like one page pictures on companies, like little note sheets. I recommend going and checking them out. Uh, but he's also the main contributor at Best Anchor Stocks. And so for any listeners that uh, are unfamiliar with what Best Anchor Stocks is, can you give sort of the, the elevator pitch? Yeah. So uh, first, thanks for having me again. I think it's the, well, I don't, I don't think it's sure it's the second time after Constellation. So best anchor stocks uh, is like the, the goal is to find, uh, follow uh, and research a list of high quality companies uh, that have low volatility. Okay, so we, we don't aim directly for low volatility because it's almost impossible to do because the market, like you don't control the market, but by finding large established companies with predictable earnings we try to find like those companies that are not going to do a minus 60 percent or minus 70 percent because if 2020 and 2021 was a guide like people can find great companies but not many people can actually weather the volatility like that that you have to weather to to read the returns of those investments so the goal is basically to research uh, large established and low volatility companies so that they help compensate for those investments that are more volatile. I like that. When, when did you start best? When, when was best anchor stock started? January 14th. Uh, uh, it was not that it was not the best, <laughs> the best <laughs> oh. moment to start in hindsight. <laughs> no, I think honestly, it's going to be the best, like timing wise, I think it's going to be fantastic because when we launched something right near uh, the top in February, 2021, it's not the most fun because you're ang- well, anchoring back in your mind, even though yeah. you're trying not to, to have those high prices, you know? Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's, let's, like, let's, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, like it, it was a good time because the portfolio, like we're, we're building it now. But if we yeah. would have come out with a portfolio already like built, then in hindsight, it would be quite painful probably, although it's doing quite well, to be honest. All right. That's a good tease. Well, uh, <laughs> let's, let's talk about one company, ASML. I, uh, I looked up the full name, but I don't, I don't feel like saying it because it's really long. And so uh, it's just known as ASML. Um, how'd you come across them as an investment? And can you describe briefly what they do? Yeah, so the the process was pretty simple because I knew that uh, Apple was designing some of the like most advanced digital chips in the world for its devices. Like, well, now we have seen the M1, the, the M2. So I started getting interested in the semiconductor space. And I then listened to a podcast about semiconductors and they spoke about ASML uh, and how it had one of the widest modes in the, in the industry. So I thought, well, a wide moat in an industry that is that is expected to grow fast for many years to come, like seemed quite compelling to me. So that was like I was a bit worried at the start because I knew ASML was a manufacturing company, so I don't really love uh, capital-intensive businesses because, right, for example, for the what it's happening now, like all the inflationary pressures are going to hit these businesses quite hard. But for me, it was quite surprising to learn that uh, ASML actually is not capital intensive, it's quite capital light. And so we'll talk about that later. But anyways, after listening to the, to the podcast, I read the book Fabless. It's not, I think the book is dated 2014. 
and talks about the history of the semiconductor industry. And after reading the book, I just like got more excited about the industry, went to ASML website and read the annual report. I didn't understand a single thing. <laughs> so then I decided to, to go deeper into the industry first because it was almost impossible to understand what ASML did if you didn't understand the, the ecosystem. So started reading a lot about the industry until I think I grabbed, I don't think I grabbed a pretty good understanding of all the technicalities in the industry, but I don't think it's necessary to understand where ASML fits and how important it is in the industry. So that's uh, how I started. The, the process took several months. And then after knowing more about the, the industry, I actually reread uh, ASML's annual report and that's when I understood everything and how the company fit in the industry and why it was so important. And then, well, to give a brief introduction of what the company does, ASML is the uh, it's not the the sole manufacturer, but manufacturer, but it's the main manufacturer of lithography systems for the semiconductor industry. So these systems basically uh, help uh, foundries and IDMs, which are the chip manufacturers to print the, the digital chip patterns into the silicon wafer. So ASML is not alone in DUV, that is like the trailing edge um, uh, system, but it's the sole supplier of the EUV system that, that is the most advanced lithography system in the world. Okay, and I imagine we might have a lot of listeners that were in a similar boat to you when you first started looking into uh, semiconductors. So you mentioned Fabless. Were there any other resources in particular that kind of helped you learn about the industry? It was it was actually quite hard. Uh, that's why why I did the one pagers I did on the semiconductor industry because it was very very hard to find a place where they actually explained the semiconductor industry in a way that um, everyone could understand it. So I went for videos in YouTube. Uh, there's a channel that is called uh, Asianometry. He talks a lot about semiconductor, uh, like the semiconductor industry. I think he's based in Taiwan. So you could expect him to be a trusted source. And then I, I saw different videos, but it's actually very difficult to find um, a place where you can find a summary of the semiconductor industry. And then the books that are specific to the semiconductor industry, most are like really expensive, like $300 a piece because they're like very specialized and used for education more than uh, laser reading. Right. Um, yeah, that's probably a little bit beyond what we need to be as investors uh, to get a grasp to own the stock. All right, let's move into the business because we talked about the importance of lithography. Um, why are, or what are the unit economics for ASML and how is an equipment supplier to some of the largest manufacturers in the world able to achieve such large gross margins? I believe if I looked at the range over the last 10 years, it was about 40% to 50%. Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to come at the que uh, this question from three angles first, uh, price, then cost, and then software. So when it comes to price, uh, obviously due to ASML's importance and monopolistic position in EUV and its oligop oligopolistic position in EUV, although it's also somewhat a monopoly, uh, ASML has plenty of pricing power. 
So then obviously you'd think that they'd sell these systems at a, at a very acceptable margin. Um, like each EUV system, the current ones, are cost uh, like are priced north of $150 million. And the new EUV systems that are coming into high volume manufacturing in 2025, those are those cost around 300 million. So that's the part of, of price. They actually can, being the sole supply in EUV, especially, they can price these systems at a very acceptable margin. And there's no one that is going to force them to lower this price. Then from, from a cost perspective, I think it's not that intuitive, but ASML is actually capital light. So for the past 10 years, the average uh, capex over revenue has been 5%. Like if you if you tell this to someone, like if you see an, an EUV system and how they build them and how many parts it has, and you tell the same person like, hey, this is this business spends 5% on capex, it's like actually quite, um, I, I, for me, it wasn't intuitive. Like they are not spending anything compared to what they are producing. And this is only possible because the capex is borne by the supply chain. So ASML, like each system has 100,000 parts or something like that. And most of these parts are produced by third-party suppliers. And they basically borne all the capex to manufacture these, these parts and also all the research and development. Uh, obviously, ASML has to buy these parts. So that's also a cost that is, that is going into COGS. But I would say that uh, buying the parts has better economics than producing all of the, all of the parts in house, because it's there are a hundred thousand parts and most of them like are not related to each other, so it's pretty difficult to have that in house. Uh, I would also say that besides the better economics, it's also less risky to have to have it from a third party supplier, especially when you know that many of these suppliers depend on ASML, so they they cannot just run away. Um, then when you are left with, a, like you said, 40-50% gross profit, and then this translates into a 30% net, net profit margin. Uh, and the, so the, like the flow through is quite high because, I mean, ASML doesn't need to spend anything on marketing. I don't think TSMC, Inter, or Samsung need uh, to see an ad or like to see a sales pitch. So they buy an EUV system like, they they know they know it and they know who does it. No Facebook ads um, over in Taiwan, huh? <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Like, yeah. uh, actually, this this has been a problem with ASML because as they don't have a um, a strong brand towards the public, they're actually struggling with brand like with um, talent retention and talent acquisition because no engineer goes out uh, and says, hey, I want to work for ASML because probably like 90% doesn't know like what ASML is. Right. So they, they are trying to boost that. They are actually investing in marketing there. And so to put some numbers here, SGNA costs were less than 4% of revenue in 2021. So it's basically like, like a luxury company. They, they don't spend anything. Uh, and then the company does spend quite a bit on research and development like 2.5 billion, that was 14% of sales. It's not too high, especially for a company that's so technologically advanced. 
but this is also because what we said previously that most like some of the R and the R and D is borne by the suppliers. So if I'm making the optics for the EUV system, uh, I'm spending there and the research and development to manufacture the optics. It's not ASML can help me, but it's not ASML who is spending this money. And then obviously they don't have to at, at their scale. A forty percent of revenue equals two point five billion. So it's quite hard to replicate for any competitor because uh, they probably have to spend quite a bit more of as a percentage of revenue. And then also important in the in the margin mix, I would say, is that people don't like people that are not familiar with the company don't know that ASML also has software products like if. Uh, which obviously is a high margin business. So when a, cus a customer receives an EUV or DUV system, they can purchase a software upgrade. So this system has more productivity. Um, and this was very important during the semiconductor shortage because ASML was telling customers like, I'm going to be able to give you this system, but maybe in a year and a half. So customers were saying, okay, well, I'll buy the upgrade to the software, so then it's more productive, probably not as much as the new system, but it's something that can be deployed instantly and I can continue to produce more. So these the, the software and all the, the field force that ASML puts in the customer's fabs, this made around 20% of revenue in 2021. So it's actually a significant portion uh, that helps uplift margins. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. Stream is an expert interview transcript library with more than 10,000 interviews spanning across all industries, including tech, media, consumer goods, and plenty more. Not to mention 70% of these experts can be found only exclusively on Stream. Thanks to many of the interviews that I've read on Stream, I feel like I've gained a much more intimate understanding of the companies that I cover. And at this point, it has become an integral piece of my research process. So if you want to check out some of their transcripts for yourself, you can go to streamrg.co slash CCM and sign up for a free 14-day trial using the promo code CCM. Again, that's streamrg.co slash CCM, S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot C-O slash CCM. I want to try to get some context, some more context around like the value chain. So who are ASML's customers? Maybe what are some of the examples? Um, and then... Uh, what are their relationships like with suppliers? Um, kind of what, what are the dynamics there? Yeah, so the, the customers are basically the foundries and IDMs. IDMs is integrated device. Uh, IDMs, integrated device manufacturers. Yeah, yeah. And, and the foundries that pure play foundries that don't do design, just do manufacturing. So that would be TSMC, Intel, TSMC, Intel, and Samsung, uh, like ASML doesn't disclose it, but 60% of their revenue comes from this, this, these three customers because they are the ones that are um, that are actually buying the EUV that is uh, the higher price product. So ASML always had a, like received a customer concentration risk, but there's actually little that the company can do about it because uh, these fabs are so expensive that the foundries have consolidated to large players that actually can do this, can can spend this capex. Like 
if you see, I, I think TSMC or Samsung, they are spending north of mm, 20 billion in some in some fabs. So this actually this expenditure can only be made by by big players. Um, so I think it's obviously a risk, but it's not like ASML can diversify to uh, more EUV customers because the, the pool is really slow, the pool of customers. Uh, ASML also sells to to companies that uh, to memory fabs. And now they, these memory fabs are starting to purchase EUV also. But the, the bulk of the revenues is in, the, in those three customers. And also the DUV is sold more to trailing edge um, fabs, especially analog. So when you do an analog chip, you don't, not, you don't need like in a digital chip to the smallest features. So those are buying DUV. With DUV, you can do uh, also advanced chips, but not so advanced as with um, EUV. So that on the on the side of, of customers, I would say that it's kind of a symbiosis relationship. Like ASML knows that it depends on these customers, but these customers know that they depend on ASML. And both are actually trying to uh, keep a healthy long-term relationship. So ASML in the chip shortage could have uh, probably hiked prices or doubled prices if they wished. Like people were going to still buy the, the systems or maybe not, not double, but hike prices 20%. But they said that they were not going to act that way because that would like damage the long-term relationship with, with foundries. So uh, that's, that's one part. Like... ASML does hike prices and does have pricing power, but they always do it looking at productivity. So if my system is more productive, then you're going to have to pay more for it. Probably what ASML spends on making it more productive is less than what they are getting with the price hike. But it makes sense for customers to see that a, a system is more expensive because it's producing more. So that's I would say that's the relationship with with customers and then with suppliers it's much more complex because as we said it's like the the systems are the EUV for example is one hundred thousand parts so there are hundreds and hundreds of suppliers I would divide them into two groups one is like the supplier that produces a commoditized um, product that it's not the sole supplier of that part. So there, I would guess ASML has quite a bit of bargaining power because uh, they actually probably that supplier is selling a lot of his output to ASML. And then you can you have the exclusive suppliers. So for example, the the company that makes the optics is called Carl Zeiss. It's a German company, and they are the sole supplier of this part. So you would say, okay, so ASML doesn't have too much bargaining power because they they need this part from that supplier. But the thing is that ASML has been intelligent in the sense that they have participated, like they have bought a participation in these companies, or in some cases, they have bought them in full. So that reduces somewhat the bargaining power. I think from Carl's size, if I don't remember incorrectly, ASML owns like 30%. And of the company that does the light source uh, for the EUV system, if I'm not mistaken, ASML owns 100% of the company. So this is this is why the moat is is much larger than many people think because you don't have only to replicate the technology 
but you have to replicate all the businesses that do the parts that go into the system. So these companies have been decades investing in this technology. So you have to replicate like 10, 15 companies if you want to match an EUV system. So it's, it's obviously not easy. All right. So we cover the basics of the business. And now the, the latter half of the show, we're going to cover kind of any nuances, current news, and then we'll get to the valuation of financials more specifically. So first question, I guess we're coming out with some negative stuff. The, there are rumors out there recently that the U.S. and I guess U.S. and the allies want to convince ASML to ban them from selling even its legacy equipment uh, to China. And I believe the EUVs are banned from China right now, but this would be the DEV or the DUVs. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, how big of a threat to the business is this if they're excluded from China? Okay, so if, if we put numbers, it's not that big of a risk as someone without context would think because uh, China is the largest uh, like buyer of semiconductors, but it's actually not that important when it comes to manufacturing semiconductors. I think it's like the sixth country in semiconductor manufacturing. Obviously, the government is trying to boost that. So um, China makes around 14, 14% of ASML's revenues. Like It's a pretty substantial part, but it's not something that would make ASML like um, lose half of its of its business. As you said, EUV exports are already forbidden. Now they're talking about DUV. I think it's immersion DUV because there are two types of DUV. One is dry DUV and immersion DUV. So immersion DUV is used for more advanced chips than dry DUV. I think that they will not ban dry DUV probably because probably China already has some domestic uh, copy of that. So it doesn't make sense. So from a quantitative point of view, the impact would be significant, but not that, uh, I don't know, this is breaking probably. Especially, I think that we have to take into account that there's another side of the coin to all this. It's not that the US wants to get China away from manufacturing. They want to take China away from manufacturing and they want to dominate manufacturing and Europe also. So at the same time that they are trying to do these moves, they are doing what we said before of the CHIPS Act, that they are trying to bring the, uh, like subsidize other companies to bring um, manufacturing to their countries. We have seen TSMC is building a fab in Arizona. Um, and then I think it was Global Foundries that is now saying it's going to invest in France. Intel is also looking at Germany. So. This, like these subsidies are going to benefit materially ASML because ASML, like a fab is very expensive. And most of the, like the cost of the fab is equipment to build chips. And most of this equipment is like our ASML systems. So as long as the US and the EU keep incentivizing domestic manufacturing, ASML is going to see a lot of that money flow to, to their financials. So that should should help counteract like the impact from a China ban. But to be honest, as an investor, what I don't like is not the fact that China is being banned from uh, like DUV, is the fact that the government is getting maybe uh, too involved in the company. Like this is 
this is obviously something normal when you have a company that is the only one able to do the most, like the machines that made the most advanced chips. So I think it's it's a risk that is out there, but um, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that the impact is that large as people think. I don't know. ASML, I think, dropped 8% on the news or something like that. I actually contacted uh, ASML's investor relation department, and they told me that they were like the logic, like the answer I expected to receive that they were not going to comment on rumors, but that that was a rumor that was like it was a rumor that had been there for quite a couple of years. Right. So it's it's not something that hasn't been thrown around before. Okay. Here's something that's maybe more positive, but I think investors maybe don't believe it as much anymore. If we're kind of looking at what the stock price has done. On the last conference call, which I believe would have been Q1 in May or April, uh, ASML execs said they had five years of demand already booked given their manufacturing capabilities. Um, because I, I guess you know they, they have a hard time ramping up given how complicated everything is. How reliable do you think that statement is? Well, I think it's not 100% reliable, obviously. <laughs> the net, net bookings for ASML, I think last quarter were north of 24 billion. So that's basically telling you that they can put one year and a half of revenue just if they satisfy the demand that they have already sold. Um, I don't think it's, like I said, 100% reliable, but I actually don't think it, it matters that much right now because like many people are talking about an incoming sem semiconductor bust. And I think like that's why semiconductor stocks are doing so poorly. Everyone expects a down cycle now. So even those with, that have demand book are doing poorly because investors think there's plenty of double ordering, like uh, customers putting on double order double orders because they have so much demand that they cannot need that they have if a down cycle comes obviously much of this demand they, they will not need um so for sure there's double ordering when it comes to duv in asml i think that's probably the case but duvs right now is for 40 percent overbooked so you need 40 percent cancellations like to for for that those cancellations to fly into the income statement Right now, every cancellation is going to go to the to the net bookings metric, uh, and it's not going to impact uh, the income statement. So, and this is what management said in a recent conference. Like, imagine if demand goes down twenty percent. Well, we st we still have a buffer of twenty percent. So, if the down cycle is short lived, maybe we will never see that lower demand go into the income statement because the orders would pick up in the in the coming the coming months now if the if the down cycle is i don't know one year or two years probably you'd see an impact to the top line and but i'm less worried about the euv side because these systems are key for for customers to remain competitive like intel didn't go to EUV soon, and it caused them a lot of trouble with TSMC that moved to, to this technology. So many actually, it's like they, they need them to remain competitive. Not investing in EUV means that maybe in five years, you're going to regret it because 
you're not going to be uh, uh, manufacturing the same leading edge chips as your competitors. So they are actually paying prepayments <laughs> to receive this, this system. So Intel has booked the most advanced EUV uh, system for 2025. And they have paid, obviously it's not disclosed, but they have paid a hefty amount to be the first ones to receive it. So saying no to EUV now means you're losing that prepayment, obviously. And secondly, you're saying I'm risking my competitive position over the long term. So I don't think that's happening. Like EUV, I don't see, see will see meaning, meaningful cancellations if a down cycle comes. So this is obviously my opinion and things could go differently, but I actually think that ASML is probably the company in the semiconductor equipment space with the least top line risk in a semi down cycle. I, I always like, <clears throat> I guess I always struggle with whenever a company uh, has a competitive advantage that's based on just being further ahead technologically. Cause I can never like, I, I feel like I, uh, it's maybe too complex for me to understand, but do you think there's any other company that could do what ASML does? Okay. So in there's definitely in DUV and in metrology and inspection, there's obviously companies that can do that because ASML has competition there. In dry DUV, uh, Canon does the, the systems also. And in immersion DUV, it's Nikon, which by the way, the US is also pressuring Japan to, uh, for like, to prohibit the exports of Nikon to China because and, uh, they, uh, they can get... Just to say Nikon's the other big lithography company, right? From Japan. Just, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do the immersion DUV, which is exactly what the US wants to like ban uh, ASML from exporting to China. So my first thought was, well, but this is a bit stupid because China can get it from Japan. But then I read that they are also trying to pressure Japan to ban it. So that it made it made more sense. Um so there, there there's all there's competition there although ASML is the, the leader, but ASML is increasingly shifting to EUV. So actually their mode is getting stronger because the semiconductor industry is following Moore's law that for, for people who don't, who don't have context, Moore's law states that the number of transistors that you can fit on a chip doubles every two years and the price is cut in half. It's like the main reason why technology is deflationary. I don't know if I should have said that word in the current environment. But <laughs> <it's> a, <laughs> um, so as the semiconductor industry moves to EUV and is less reliant, like DUV will, will always be needed, but ASML is less reliant on DUV. So the mode is getting stronger around the business. I don't think EUV is replicable for at least, uh, I'm going to be conservative. I'll say for at least a decade because uh, what we said before, you have to first get the technology right, like how do you want to assemble the system? And then you also have to get the, all the supply chain, which is probably the hard part. Like, I don't think the hard part is knowing like how to assemble the system, but the hard part is having all the pieces ready and all the companies that do the pieces. Like some of these companies have exclusivity agreements with ASML. So 
a competitor cannot come and start like buying parts from them. Um, and also, uh, if someone tries to replicate this, ASML keeps evolving. So low low NA EUV is like the uh, trailing edge EUV, so to say. Um, and nobody has been able to replicate that. And ASML is already launching the next generation of EUV, which is high NA. So I think it's actually quite uh, a strong mode. I know in technology, you like you can never never say never because technology comes at you fast. But I think I'm I'm quite relaxed due to the supply chain mode that the company has more than the technological mode, which is also which is also wide in my opinion. And then they also have metrology and inspection systems that are systems that are used to test how like the 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 chips like to see if the patterns are, have been printed correctly and here uh, asml has competition and it's not the, uh, and they are not the leaders so there's significant competition there too especially from kla gotcha um oh brian you have some yeah so, <clears throat> i'm just trying to think through it so that you said some of the more advanced systems are like 300 million dollars a piece and you might not have the answer in front of you but how many of these systems can they like produce i i imagine they can't be I think it's, that much i think it's like 60 right unless you probably know that well that's like the 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 high na systems i think uh so the mm -hmm. one that cost 300 million management was talking about uh building a capacity of 20 per year uh over the medium term so that would be like being able to produce these systems like in 2026 or 2027 and now they are also like trying to boost the 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 capacity of all the other systems but that's sort of the preliminary numbers that that they gave like right now the not the 300 million one but the 150 million one like the uh, trailing edge euv so to say the low na uh last year if i'm not mistaken they shipped 42 and this year they expect to ship 55 so that's more or less like the the numbers behind it but it's also important to know that when they ship 55 it doesn't mean that they are recognizing in revenue 55 they are probably recognizing less because with the chip shortage they what they have done is what they called fast shipments so they ship the product to the customer and then the, all the testing of the system is done in the customer's fab because that like shortens the the sales cycle, and and they cannot recognize it in revenue until the customer has has like tested the product and is already using it. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so we talked about this a bit, but maybe can you quantify how the reshoring of manufacturing in America and Europe? can be for asml is there are you just tracking the capex announcements that you know intel and all the other companies are making in, in the west or, or how, how can we understand like how important this is for someone like asml and the other equipment manufacturers yeah so i, I think it's difficult to quantify exactly because you don't exactly know how much of each fab is going to be spent on asml's products but i think seeing the capex of the big players is quite a good sign 
for example, I think TSMC spent last year uh, $40 billion in capital expenditures, and they are expected to spend this year $44 billion. So it's already a high figure and it's increasing. Um, I actually don't have a number behind it. I, I don't think the... When, when I researched ASML, like the, the Chips Act and everything was not like in the news every day or it was like, I, I actually didn't think about it. So um, I think that there's enough demand even without the Chips Act because the, the chips have to, meet, have to be made and there's an increasing demand for chips and this is a long-term circular tailwind. So um, I don't know how to quantify it, but I know it's going to be a very significant tailwind for the company because it's basically money that is flowing to them. Even and in a recent conference, also the, the head of EUV said that even if these fabs are built, but then they are not used at full capacity, they actually don't care that much because they are putting the system on the floor. So once the system is on the floor, they recognize the revenue and, and it's done. Obviously, there, there's more than just selling the system because as we, as we said uh, before, ASML also has a portion of its revenue coming from software updates and from field force that the company is putting in the, in the fabs to help the, the customers run these companies. So it's not the systems you sell, but as the installed base gets larger, it's also the money you're going to make with those uh, additional services. I would say my number would be it's going. It might be pretty significant. That's my number. It's high. It's high. Given it's the high. numbers, it's... I mean that everyone's throwing around, it's got to be high. Um, all right, we got a few more questions. Last one specifically on the financials. How cyclical are ASML's margins? I know people worry about that in the semiconductor industry. Has that been smoothed out because of some of the things you've been talking about? What is that something you worry about when you're making an investment here? Okay, so if, if supply would be equal to demand, I would tell you right now they, that ASML's margins are cyclical because I don't see how I don't see the company spending less on research and development just because they are selling less. Like it's part of the mode is spending that money. So obviously under a, a low demand environment, if sales go down, the margins uh, should compress. But in the, well, like there's also some sort of pricing power you can do to try to uplift margins in that scenario. But I don't think it would be enough, especially because we talked about before that they are trying to uh, keep the, the long-term re relationships with customers healthy. So I don't think they would, they would do like, I don't know if it was uh, Pepsi today that they hiked price at like 11%. I don't see ASML doing that. But in the case we are now, where supply is short of demand by a pretty substantial margin, uh, I don't see margins being that cyclical because... The, as we said, the down cycle would, it, would impact net bookings, but not the financials directly. So I think ASML would be able to, to maintain its margins. They are seeing a little bit of cost pressure due to inflation, obviously, but it's not that significant for a, for a manufacturing company. So I would say that right now I'm not worried 
about uh, cyclicality in margins, I would be very worried in case supply would exactly match demand. Okay. Last, well, second to last question. The uh, I want to talk about the valuation. So I think it's sitting around $175 billion market cap today. How do you go about valuing ASML? Okay, so if I were to simplify things a bit and just look at multiples, I would say that 29 times uh, last 12 months earnings doesn't seem excessive for a monopoly in such an important industry. Obviously, it's high. It's richly valued. That's uh, especially when you consider it, when you compare it to the peers. But when you say peers, well, the peers are considered everyone that does like equipment for the semiconductor industry, but obviously ASML has no direct peer, so to say, because they have a product that nobody else has. Um, if you do uh, next 12 months, the P, I think, stands around 22 times. Now, a lot of arguments are being made that, yes, but this is like artificially cheap because the E might contract and then the like it will, it won't be that cheap next year. But as we said before, I don't think that ASML has a lot of risk in the E, at least over the short term. So I think they would, they would be able to realize like most of the earnings that are expected for next year, unless things turn really rough, which could happen. So 22 times next 12 months earnings doesn't seem excessive to me either. So. This is like the easy part, but then if we do like more complex valuation method and we do an inverse discounted cash flow, uh, the current price assumes I I'm gonna last year last year's free cash flow was nine billion, but that's inflated. So many people look at the free cash flow yield and say, "Oh, look, uh, ASML is super cheap," but that's not real because. Uh, in those 9 billion, you have a lot of prepayments for EUV that are not recurring, like they made it once and they are not going to make it again, make it again at least for the time being. Uh, so if I would use that 9 billion to 6 billion, for example, like it's just, I'm just trying to see what the price uh, of the stock is assuming right now. So if, if we bring like starting free cash flow to 6 billion, um, and we assume, like the, the current price assume that the company is able to grow 13%, it's free cash flow during the first five years, 10% from years five to 10, and using a terminal rate of 3% and a discount rate of 10%. And I'm not assuming here any uh, reduction in shares outstanding, which I think probably is going to happen. Um, so I think ASML is capable of comfortably beating these estimates, especially considering that the chip industry is shifting to EUV. So EUV is basically ASML. So they are they are shifting towards ASML, and there's like it's a probably right now right now it isn't, but in the future EUV will be a higher margin business than DUV. So I would say that based on this assumption, it's undervalued. And, and also we have to take into account that high quality companies like are not perfectly represented in a discounted cash flow model because you, from year 10, you drop the terminal rate to 3%. Obviously it's stupid forecasting more than, well, even more than five years is a bit silly forecasting because 
you're probably going to miss even what the company makes less next year. So uh, I would assume that ASML from year 10 onwards will keep growing at a faster pace that the terminal rate is portraying. So I would say that if it, under a DCF, it appears fairly valued. For me, if it's a high quality company, it will be undervalued. Like imagine, and I'm going to put another example, but imagine um, valuing Google using a five-year discounted cash flow in the year 2013. And now you see after five years what Google is, Google is doing and you're like, well, obviously like, it grew past five years quite comfortably. But obviously there are not so many companies that are able to grow past a 10th year. Like there's a lot of survivorship bias in this assumption, but I, for me, it's, it's fairly valued using this, these assumptions, although it can be like the short term can be very tough. Like that's, if we go into a down cycle and a recession, it doesn't matter if ASML is more protected, protected is going to go probably down with the rest of the industry. You talked about the share count reduction. Uh, are they, I think I saw that they are returning capital to shareholders through both buybacks yep. and dividends. Is that right? Yep. They, they are doing both, but I, I actually don't like the company's buyback policy because they are actually DCAing the like dollar cost average, averaging their purchases. Uh. And I'm not a big fan of that, <laughs> especially because what they had, I think they had 9 billion under the repurchase agreement and it's basically ending. Like they have a, they have spent 87% of that amount. And what if like now everything drops, like they have to probably approve a, a new one or whatever, but I don't like the fact that they are uh, making like recurrent purchases. I would prefer like, I would prefer them to save it. And when things got really, really rough to, to buy back a large chunk. And if that do, does not happen, I would prefer to receive that money uh, in a dividend, probably. Kind of be, be the, more opportunistic. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. And then just to clear things <laughs> up, did you say for your five-year assumption, was it 30 or 13? Thir- three, 13, zero. 13. 13, 13. Okay. I was yeah, going to say yeah, 30. Yeah. That would be, a, that'd be aggressive. No, no, I was no, going to no, ask no, for no. clarification there. All right. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. All right, last question. What could go wrong? This is a little pre-mortem. We like to close things out here. Why would ASML be a poor investment, say, over the next five or 10 years? Okay, I think we we've talked about the, the two main risks uh, a bit over the like in the conversation. The first one is that the government gets too involved. That ASML is some sort of like nationalized company, and obviously that would be terrible for the stock, uh, in my opinion. Um, then the other risk I see is that ASML is not able to expand uh, supply to match demand. Like it's not. Expanding demand uh, supply for ASML is not easy at all because uh, they have to talk to all of their suppliers because you cannot say I'm going to do 30 more EUV systems if size that does the optics cannot do 30 more optics. Like you need them to be on board too. So uh, if they cannot boost supply too much, this demand is going to be like a cap on growth, so to say. Um, I'm not really worried over the short term because 
there's no competitor. So even if you like take long to deliver the system, you're not going to impact your customer relationships because there's not another supplier that is uh, selling the same things as you in less time. But over the long term, mm, this should be like the main focus on the company for the company, in my opinion. They are already working on it. They said in the last earnings call that they are looking to boost uh, the capacity significantly. And they are talking to the suppliers and they, they'll say something uh, in the investor day that I think is November or something like that. Is that where uh, they could, I mean, could they just theoretically invest in some of their suppliers and give them some capital to yeah. boost their own supplier supply? Yeah, they, they, they have said that where suppliers cannot uh, invest all the capex needed to boost this uh, capacity expansion, they'll help them. Uh, they have always done like they'll give them uh, like loans or whatever, or they'll acquire a participation and they'll give them money so they can boost the the supply. Okay, perfect. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. Uh, thank you for joining us for a second time. For any listeners that want to keep up with you, where's the best place to do that, and where can they uh, find more of your work? Well, I think uh, the best place is uh, Twitter uh, at InvestQuotes, and then also Seeking Alpha, uh, that I'm the main contributor of of main uh, best anchor stocks. So those two places would be the best. Well, and also. Shout out here to to Common Stock. They can also find me on Common Stock uh, at Invest Quotes too. So the same as as Twitter. Yeah, that's, that's right. We've been po- we've been all posting on there. Uh, it's gotten a lot. Uh, the activity on there is growing for sure. And we'll we'll link uh, in the show notes to the Twitter and the Seeking Alpha. All right. Well, that's going to do it. We want to remind our listeners that Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Archer Capital, so we may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Leandro, for coming on the show. We'll see you guys next time. 